Okay, so I was in D.C. and I had just been robbed, right? Somebody ran off with my wallet, my ID, my money, my credit cards, everything. All I had left was a suitcase full of dirty clothes and a plane ticket to Cleveland. And by the kindness of strangers, I made it to the airport. And so I go up to the security line and the guy says, let me see your ticket and ID. Well, I did have the ticket, but I didn't have any ID. But what did I find in my luggage but a brochure of the Snap Judgment program with my face on the cover. So I showed him that instead. And dude said, I'm sorry, sir. This is not a legal ID. And I'm like, look, man, this is all I've got right now. You got to let me up in that plane. And he's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to step aside now, sir. And I'm desperate, right? So I start stalling. I'm stalling for time. Uh, Hey, 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 let me speak to the manager. I I need to speak to the manager. And he's ticked off. He's like, all right, all right. He gets on the walkie-talkie, and we wait. And the people behind me are fuming. They've got places to go. I'm slowing everybody down. This is not cool. And then I see her. A big lady in an official uniform. People parting to either side as she strides past. And she looks almost exactly like my auntie. And at once I know, everything is going to be okay. Call it reverse racism if you want to. I don't care. She comes over, looks me up and down and says, what seems to be the problem? And I'm like, they're not trying to let me up on this airplane. And she's like, for real? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, Talking about, I got to have some official ID. Knowing good and well, this is me right here on the brochure. She looks over at the dude. By this point, he's kind of looking sheepish. And she says, you know you're going to make him late for his plane. (laughs) And that's what I've been trying to tell him the whole time. She stamps my ticket, waves me through, and says, next time, sweetie. Mike just want to bring some ID to the airport? (laughs) Oh, I will. Don't worry. But how do you know I'm not some kind of crazy? She just looks at me, shakes her head and says, baby, I trust you. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Trust Me. Amazing stories where people extend the most important thing of all to someone else, whether they are worthy of it or not. My name is Glenn, Pure of Heart, Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. heard that there's no honor among thieves, right? And maybe you've heard as well that for some people, sometimes something is always going to pull them back in. Our first story deals with folk who live outside the tidy constraints of law and legalities and the right thing to do. As such, it does reference illegal drugs and ill-gotten gain. But The squeamish innocent shouldn't worry too much. This is Public Radio. My name is Brian O'Day, and I am 64. In the 70s, Brian was making good money at his job. I lived comfortably. I didn't live extravagantly. I mean, I had nice cars, and I had a nice country house, and I had a nice home, and I had a nice boat. I had the toys, and, and uh, but I didn't live extravagantly. I lived a very private life. Brian was the kind of guy that you could go to when you were in a jam. I had a lot of money, and so I gave away millions of dollars, and I got stiffed for millions of dollars. Once I live a life of a millionaire. And, but I had a great time. You know, I was just having fun. I had kids. Brian lived a sweet life because his day job 
was drug smuggling. He started out small-time in Canada, but quickly evolved into an international player who moved tons all across the world. I started bringing coke into L.A., and how I was doing that was I would go to South America and dissolve the coke in methanol, and then I would pour that methanol solution into fabric, ruanas specifically, or ponchos. And then I would just hop on a plane and fly those ponchos right into L.A. airport, and they'd go through my luggage. Now, as long as they didn't pick their nose or something after going through my luggage and their nose went numb from handling coke-laden material, I was safe. I'd take that material, soak it in methanol, flashy vapor, Operated off and be left with the pure cocaine back on the U.S. side. But after a decade of the high life, Brian wanted out. 1984, I just I had such a bad habit, I had to quit. For a couple of years, I kept trying to stop and trying to stop, and I'd make it stop and start, and I realized I got to get out of this business. If I get out of this business, I have a chance to quit, and as long as I'm in this business, I'll never quit this so I checked into a hospital, got sober, finished the 30 days. I pulled out of there on my motorcycle and got hit by a truck and lost my memory. <laughs> Had to go back in and do the program again. Now that he was clean and sober, he only needed one thing. I needed money. When I got a phone call from this guy who I grew up with in Newfoundland, who I had serious issues with a few years earlier, and he brought someone to break my arms. He took a shot at me, and this is a guy that I would never, ever do anything with ever again. He phones me and says, look, I know we've had our issues in the past, but I want to put all that behind us because I have got the offload of a lifetime. An offload is a place where you can bring in drugs from the sea or air into a very safe location and transport it out of there without getting caught. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I'm getting out of the business. And he said, look, you got the connections. I know you do. I know the boys can do it from Southeast Asia. Just hook it up. You don't have to do anything. Hook it up. You will get a huge payday here. This will be the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Just give it a shot and take a look at it. I couldn't help it. As much as I knew I shouldn't do this, I got sucked back in. Against his own instincts, he joined forces with his old enemy to pull off the score of a lifetime. That afternoon, we were on a plane to Washington, and it was every single thing that he said it was. He was hooked up with this fisherman in Anacortes, Washington. It was a dry dock facility. It was private. It was huge. We could sail right in there, tie up, be looking like we were shipping fish from Alaska. None of us had ever seen anything like this before, so we said yes, 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 and we began putting together a 75-ton buy of pot in Vietnam. We went out and raised about $15 million for equipment, expenses, and product purchases. We put together a team of 110 people all around the world, and we began the procedure by organizing to bring in 25 of the 75 tons in the first shipment. They picked the load up over there was the plan. We would meet them in the Baltic Sea and then go up into a fjord in Alaska, hide our boats, repackage everything, do the quality control, barcode everything, package it in wet lock fish boxes so it looked like fish, and then come down, bring it down into Washington. So this was the plan. But when your score is worldwide, it's hard to control it. Now, 110 guys is a big herd of cats to keep in line. There was one condition that we had to bring into play here. Nobody did cocaine. If you did coke, you're out. Everyone agreed, let's keep this professional. Except for the guy who brought the deal to the table in the first place. Well, this guy, this Newfoundlander, couldn't stop showing up at that house because we put money in his pocket with limos, cocaine, two in the morning, making a lot of racket, drawing heat. So Brian had to tell him. You have to leave. We assured him he would be paid, and he left. 25 tons, we get it. We transfer it up in the Bering Sea. We bring it up in a fjord. We repack it in wet lock fish boxes and shrink wrap. We barcode every box so they never have to be opened, and we can tell how much value is in each box. And we come down on a Saturday morning right into Anacortes to the dry dock, and I had five tractor trailers, and one by one, we loaded those things up, buddy, and they took off to California. And then we started distributing it all over the country. 25 tons of pots, about $75 million. But that was only half the score, and they still had to pay off the loose cannon to keep quiet. This guy got wind that we had pulled the deal off and showed up in Anacortes looking for his money. 
So we had a meeting and had to decide what we were going to do with them. We still had another 50 tons over there. So were we going to put a million dollars or $2 million in this guy's hands right now? Let him go nuts? Or we give him a smaller amount of money, just keep a leash on him until we pull off the other load? And the boys decided that they wanted to give him 50 grand. I thought that was way too little and that was going to be a big problem. But they wanted to do it, so that's what we did. Gave him 50 grand. And he was freaked out pissed off, furious, and took that Vaughn's grocery bag with 50 grand in it, went right to the DEA, put it on the table and said, I can tell you where there's a lot more that looks just like this. Brian and the crew had no clue that the whole score was now under heavy surveillance. And so for the next 10 months, the DEA followed us and they watched us put together that entire 50 tons. But it's not as if these guys weren't careful. Now we had scanners... We had safe houses. We had people listening to radios. But we could never isolate the frequencies of the feds. We couldn't listen to the DEA, the FBI, ATF, any of the federal police agencies. We could not isolate radio transmission frequencies, so we couldn't program them into our scanners. But with the right money, you can get the right guy. We brought a guy up. He had a spectrum analyzer. And so now, finally, here we are, just days before we're bringing the load in, we're able to listen to the feds talk on the radio. Now, up until this, all of our communications back and forth have been done by radio using dictionaries. If I wanted to say something to you, I would formulate a sentence and write it down. And then I would look up every word in that sentence in the dictionary and note what page the word was on and what number down on the page that word was. And then I would speak to you like this. I would radio you on single sideband and say, Hello, Misty 2, Misty 2, this is the KB, KB calling. I want you to check the following part numbers. 102-8, And so what that meant was page 102, the eighth word on the page. Page 297, the 19th word on the page. It took a long time to have a conversation like that. And we wanted to be completely clear now before we brought this last load down. One last meeting, face to face, but on the way. En route, my radio picks up the DEA talking about following me in my brown suburban. We got a brown suburban I took off and I drove like a friggin' maniac for about six hours nonstop. I took dirt roads, side roads, country roads, every road. And if a car was coming a mile down the road, as far as I was concerned, it was a cop. And finally settled near Spokane about six hours later and called the safe house. And she said, You're the fourth today. Call back in two hours. We're arranging a meeting. The meeting was set up in the parking lot of this country store in the middle of nowhere. And we had to make a decision what to do. So the first thing we did was call a private detective who was a former DEA agent to go to workforce and find out what the DEA knew. He told us they were flying up and down the inside passage looking for us. They knew we had the load. They couldn't find our boats. And they were looking for us hard. We knew that they knew but they didn't know that we knew they knew. That just blew our minds. They had two options, call off the whole deal or make a new plan to bait and switch. We went to a friend of ours and said, loan us your boat, will you? So he loaned us this 250 foot boat. We took off on that boat with another crew up to Alaska. As we were going up, we're listening to them fly over us, not knowing who they're flying over, looking for us. So we get up there, we offload all of the product off of the boats that were hidden in the fjord, put it on our boat, on this new boat, and we sail it back down towards the inside passage where you cross from Canada into the U.S. And once they cross the border, it was time to drop the bait. We pull all of the boats they're looking for out into the open and tie them off together like they're doing something. We let them spot us. The radios light up. We're on them. We got them. Stay back. Stay away. Just we'll watch them. We got them now. We mark them. They are all on these three boats. The moment those boats cross the border of Canada into the U.S., All hell broke loose, buddy. Helicopters, seaplanes, boats, FBI, DEA, ATF, every acronymic policing agency in the United States. Hundreds of agents swarmed the boats with guns out, ready to take down one of the biggest busts in history. And what did they find? There was fresh donuts and coffee waiting for them on the boat. But no narcotics, no contraband, and no evidence. They were freaked. They knew they'd been had. They knew they'd been had. I personally wasn't there. (laughs) 
I was with the pot. The total value of the load was about $220 million. And the DEA knew it had slipped right through their fingers. I am no fool, okay? I may have done some stupid things in my life, but fool I am not. I am not foolish enough to think for one second that you can throw a whole heaping plateful of egg on the face of the DEA and walk away unscathed. I knew that there was a hammer poised to fall somewhere at some point. But for now, he was celebrating his last score. I thought it would be my last, yeah. It was my last. That was the only deal, really, that I ever did for the dough. That was the problem. I gave up the coke for the two years that I was doing that deal. But the moment the deal was done, I went and bought myself a kilo. (laughs) Eight days and eight ounces later, kept getting progressively more and more insane. I'd look out the window, and the trees would turn into my wife and my kids. They'd hallucinate. And I'd hit the floor and crawl across the floor and peek out the window. Every ashtray in the house had cigarettes burning in it. There were empties of liquor everywhere. I'd walk by the mirror in the bathroom and catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror and just go into a panic, not knowing who it was, looking back at me, thinking someone was there, and it was me. It was the most horrific, self-induced, hellish time of my life that I couldn't stop. And then all of a sudden, as I was walking by the mirror, I felt like my chest exploded. And the bag of Coke went up in the air, and I can remember seeing the Coke like snowflakes, and I just collapsed to the floor. I had a heart attack. That ended me in hospital for a month. I went to N-A-A-A-C-A, Jesus, put anything with an A behind it, and I was going to the meeting, because I just wanted to get sober. So when I finished my 30 days, I hung around that hospital, and it was three years into working in this recovery hospital with drug addicts and alcoholics when the DEA showed up. Three years later, the hammer finally dropped. DEA showed up and said, this ain't about change or rehabilitation, this is about crushing your life, now do the right thing. And they thought they had the one man who would break. They wanted me to cooperate more than anyone else because I was working as a drug counselor and they figured this would be their, you know, their prime witness and I was one of the management of the group. And they eventually indicted 55 guys. 53 of them cooperated, talked. Two didn't. I didn't talk and my chief engineer, Frank, he didn't talk either. All the boys who thought they'd all get off scot-free all got hit with jail sentences. Brian served his time without giving anybody up. But when he got out, he was just another ex-con. It was time for another switch. April 2001. I am struggling. I mean, I'd been out of prison for a while. And my wife said to me one day, You know what, Brian? You need to get a job. And I said, Get a job? Who's going to hire me? I don't know how to do anything. Never had a job in my life. And she said, Oh, I see. You had 110 people working in a secret corporation around the world doing $225 million in secret business, and you don't know how to do anything. Sit down and write a resume and take the skills that you think are transferable from that business to the real world and see what you come up with. So Brian came up with his next escape plan. So I sat down and started to write what eventually was to become a classified ad that I ran in the National Post, and it ended up something like this. Headlined, former marijuana smuggler. Having recently completed a 10-year sentence incident-free for smuggling 75 tons of marijuana into the United States, I am now looking for a legal means to support my wife and my family. I am expert in all levels of uh, security. I'm a great people skills, computer expert, speak three languages. And I um, put it in the classified section of the financial post. It started on a Monday morning. My phone did not stop ringing for three weeks. And I got over 600 responses from all over the world. Got offered jobs from customs and and immigration. All the police agencies in the U.S. were reaching out to me. Smugglers, organ smugglers, dope smugglers. It was really quite incredible. And out of all the jobs he could have picked, he picked the one that fit his drug kingpin past the best. Television producer. Last year did a big show for CBC Television. It was like The Apprentice for Ex-Cons called Redemption Inc. It was a giant success. I'm featured in this film called How to Make Money Selling Drugs, and it has Woody Harrelson, Susan Sarandon, Eminem, 50 Cent, and me. And I realize what great good fortune I have. Big 
big thanks to Brian O'Day. That's O-D-E-A for sharing his highs and lows with Snap. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf with sound design by Renzo Gorio and Pat Masidi-Miller. When Snap Judgment returns, please don't look in the back, officer, because I swear this is not my car that I'm driving. With the license plate with my name on it. When Snap Judgment, the Trust Me episode continues. Stay tuned. Okay, Mark. Good news, bad news. The bad news, you've probably already heard it. The cost of a stamp just went up to 49 cents. But the good news is not if you have stamps.com. With stamps.com, you're going to pay less for postage than you would even at the post office. For first class mail, for priority and priority express mail packages, everything. Stamps.com is easy to use and convenient. You can buy and print discounted stamps, shipping labels, everything using your own computer and printer. Not only will you save money with stamps.com by not paying full price for postage, but you're going to save valuable time too, and time is money. Stamps.com always keeps the rates up to date, so you'll get the exact postage you need every single time right from your desk. Never go to the post office again. Never. Right now, there's a special offer for listeners of the Snap Podcast, a no-list trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Snap. That's Stamps.com. Enter Snap and happy mailing. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. Help shape the future of Snap and public radio as a whole. NPR wants your feedback and observations to enrich our news coverage and storytelling. At nprlistens.org, you can join the conversation. Voice your opinions. Make an impact. Visit nprlistens.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Trust Me episode. Now, since I was a kid... I've had this reoccurring dream, reoccurring nightmare, really. And I'm not going to give it away except to say that Neil Lambert, our next guest, he lived the dream in real life. And he lived it at the fanciest hotel in town. My name is Neil Lambert. I was in Montreal on a business trip, and I was there with my coworkers and my boss. So uh, we all took our taxi to this bar down the street, and as we're getting out of the taxi, there's this guy, and he's dressed in business attire, and he looks like he's at the end of his rope. And he asked me if I know where the Ritz-Carlton was, which coincidentally is where I'm staying. I didn't really want to trouble myself with trying to give the guy directions. I'm not from Montreal, and so I ended up lying to him telling him that I, I didn't know where it was. And I remember as I was walking away, the look that he gave me was that look of kind of like total defeat. And so I went into the bar and uh, quickly forgot about him. We all drank and had a good time. And then uh, we came back to the hotel and I had drank and maybe a little bit too much. I was going through my whole process of washing up and brushing my teeth and whatever. And then something completely bizarre happened. Uh, I remember putting my hand on the door handle to leave the bathroom to go to my bedroom. I blinked. And as I opened my eyes, I'm not in the bathroom. I'm actually in the hallway of the hotel, staring at my front door, and I'm completely naked, and I'm locked out. So I guess what had happened is I had somehow left the bathroom and I thought I was walking into my room, but I was actually walking out of my hotel room. I let it set in for a few minutes. I just stood there in the hallway alone, naked, waiting for myself to just wake up and nothing. It's anywhere between midnight and 
6 a.m. I'm weighing my options, and I really only have a few. I can face the music and go downstairs to the lobby, which I didn't really want to do because there may be other people from the conference, or I can find one of my coworkers. But unfortunately, I don't remember anyone's uh, room number. And so my other option was to just hope for some stranger's help. And so I started just randomly uh, walking down the hallways, uh, trying to make a little bit of noise, you know, so people would know somebody was out there knocking on doors as I walked down the hall until I found one door that had light coming from underneath it. So I knew somebody was awake. And so I knocked on the door and I saw some shadows underneath the door. The eye hole goes dark. So now I know that they're looking at me. So I start talking to the door and I say, I know this is completely insane, but I'm locked out of my room and I desperately need a towel. Can you help me? There's no response for a second and then just hysterical laughter. And then the eye hole goes back to light and I clearly see that they've walked away and they're not going to help me. And it was completely earth shattering at the time. I'm thinking, okay, That's it. The only option I have left is to go to the lobby. And so that's what I'm going to do. I got back into the elevator. And my biggest fear at this point was that somebody was going to get on the elevator. And so I had actually positioned myself into the front right corner of the elevator where all the buttons for the floors are. And I had kind of huddled into the corner. I reached the lobby. I'm ready to exit. But as the doors open, I immediately meet the eyes of a woman. She's looking at me and I'm looking at her right off the bat. As the door continues to open, it reveals my nakedness and her two children, ages four and six. And her expression is one of, like, horror and shock. Uh, My expression is probably about the same. And her kids' expression is one of, this is the funniest thing that has ever happened to either of us in our whole lives. There is a naked man, and he's riding the elevators for fun. And the doors stay open, and no one's moving and then the doors begin to close again. And all I could all I could muster as I left her sight forever was, I'm sorry, I didn't intend for this to happen this way. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do, but I guess I'll just go back to my floor. This was a terrible idea. I'm imagining in my head that she immediately went to the front desk and uh, let them know that there was some crazy man drunk exposing himself to women and children and being taken away in handcuffs in a country that I'm not even a citizen. Before I get to floor 21, floor 18, the elevator stops and the doors open. And of all the people that I could be looking at, it was the man from the beginning of my evening who was looking for the directions of the Ritz-Carlton, who I lied to and said I didn't know where it was. And we're just standing there. And the nakedness of my lie is clear, literally. And I know that he recognizes me, and I recognize him. And so uh, the first thing I say is, I'm sorry. And I explain the whole situation, and if he could just see it in his heart to forgive me for not giving him the time of day earlier, and if he could go back to his hotel room and get me a towel, I would really, really appreciate it. He takes pity on me and says, okay, give me a second, I'll, I'll go get you a towel. And so I stood there and I waited. I thought maybe this was his final revenge, but he came back and he had a towel. And I thanked him profusely. And then we rode down together. To this day, the most awkward elevator ride of my life. We got to the lobby. The young woman who's the front desk clerk, she's on the phone. And as I get closer, she says, I'm going to go. I think I have him right here. And uh, she hangs up the phone and she says, you wouldn't happen to be the same person who has been riding the elevators naked and exposing himself to other guests and randomly prowling the halls naked, knocking on people's doors, are you? Because we've had a few complaints. (laughs) Then I say, yes, that was me. Uh, I didn't really know what to do. She says, what you need to do is you need to verify what room you're in. And so I tell her my name and my room number and she looks it up in the computer and that's not true. Uh, excuse me, I say. Uh, that's definitely my room. Uh, my name is Neil. And she says, no, that name does not match that room. 
So now, like, I obviously look like a suspicious character. She's calling security. People are coming. Things are going bad. And eventually, I find out that what had happened was my boss, who booked all of the rooms, he thinks it's fun to give people aliases. So my room was under the name Wally Greenberg. And so what I ended up having to do is wait for them to find my boss and have him come to the lobby to verify that the naked employee that was standing in the lobby was in fact his. He verified my identity and he locked eyes with me like, we'll talk about this later. And I'm thinking I'm definitely fired. They take me up to my room. I walked in and all the clothes that I was wearing out that day were neatly piled in the room on the floor, folded as if I took the time to take off each individual sock and fold it and then just casually walked out the door. My boss ultimately felt pretty guilty with the whole fake name scenario. The, the next day, it was totally water under the bridge. And then as I got to the front desk to check out, the guy behind the desk says, uh, we just wanted to let you know that you're no longer welcome at the Ritz-Carlton Montreal. <laughs> Thank you, Neil Lambert, for trusting us with your story. We trust as well that you will keep your clothes on at other hotels or establishments that you care to visit in the future. That story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. Trust nobody, at least not anyone with a beautiful smile. And now for our next story. May I advise that those of sensitive disposition and youngsters Please note that listener discretion is advised. But for everyone else, get ready. We're going to Snap Judgment Live for our very own Queen of Soul. I proudly present Miss Joyce Lee. So what had happened was, I was looking for love or something real close to it when I met Damien. We caught eyes at a mutual friend's birthday party and he was fine. Damien stood about six foot three, eyes green, shaved clean with muscles all in between, so we talked a bit. I felt comfortable giving him my number by the end of the night. A week later, we went out on dates and Damien was a perfect gentleman. He would bring me flowers, surprise dinners, take me to places I'd never seen in the city. Did I mention he was fine? Until one night, I had to perform poetry at a gentleman's club in San Francisco. Now because it's a gentleman's club and I like for my attire to match my atmosphere, I was dressed like a hoe. And being the awesome girlfriend that I am, I invited Damien to join me. But I told him that I had some things to do early in the morning so he would have to take me straight home after the poetry event. He said, okay. But afterwards, he wanted to take me to this dance club just for a second, he said, just for a second. So we went to the dance club. And I waited and waited and waited. But about 2 a.m., I'm starting to fume. And just when I turned to give him this you know we need to hurry up and go look. This joker did a line of cocaine right in front of me. I got up from my seat. I was like, uh-uh, you're doing cocaine. I'm leaving right now. We get in the car and we are arguing. We're arguing through the city, over the bridge. Every time I complete the argument by saying it don't matter, honey, we're done. He starts the argument all over again, but the bickering stops when we get blurped by a cop car. Damien pulls over. The cops run his license, and before I can get a hold of what really is going on in the situation, he's handcuffed and sitting in the back of a cop car. I am still in the front of the car, hands up, scared to death, and dressed like a hoe. (laughs) Did I mention that it's four o'clock in the morning by now, and we are in Oakland? (laughs) By this time, there are seven cops. The one that wasn't white, 
comes to my side of the car and motions for me to roll down my window. And he whispers, slowly get out of the car and stand next to me. I'm afraid, but I don't know who else to trust in the situation. So I do what he tells me to do. The other cop starts searching Damien's car. I ask the cop, am I in trouble? He says, I don't know. And I told him, listen, I'm, I'm freezing cold. And he takes a long look at my whole tire. And he says, well, I got the heater on in the back of my patrol car if you want to sit there. I said, no, thank you. So at this time, the cops are done searching Damien's car and have collected about 16 protein shake containers from Damien's car. I've personally seen him scoop out powders and make shakes from these containers. So when I saw him in the car, I was thinking, maybe the brother likes to recycle. A cop opens a protein container and pulls out about eight ounces of marijuana. I gasp. He opens up another container pulls out bags and bags of cocaine. I gasp. Another, he pills, pills, marijuana, coke, pills. At this time, my gasp have turned into a full-fledged hyperventilating panic attack. I am sitting on the concrete with one hand over my heart and the other over my mouth until the cops stop flashing the lights on the drugs and flash them on me. The cop next to me grabs me, and he says, I'm assuming you do not know this gentleman. I said, apparently I don't. <laughs> he said, be honest. Did you know all those drugs were in the car? And I said, hell no, sir. After signing a sworn statement, I asked the cop, may I please talk to this jackass that I do not know? <laughs> so he takes me over to the car. They got to roll down the window for Damien's pathetic. So he looking at me, and I'm giving him a look like... <laughs> and then he starts explaining, um, well, you know, baby, I, I really heard what you were saying in the car, and uh, I'm going to really change. I said, you know what, Damien, this is not the time to be making promises to me. And he was like, well, uh, sweetie, could you do me a favor and uh, could you call my mama? I said, I don't, I don't know her. I'm not calling. No, I don't know her. Well, could you call, call my cousin? I, I said, no, I don't know her either. He said, well, uh, damn, baby. Can you do me a favor and uh, can you call my wife? I grinned. I took down his wife's number. And when the cops took Damien to jail and the sweet cop took me home in the backseat of his heated car, I called his wife and we had dinner. I held her hand throughout the divorce and we are still friends today. That is my true confession. The amazing Joyce Lee from Snap Judgment Live. The original score for that piece was written and composed by Alex Mandel and performed by Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players, Tim Frick and David Brandt. Now, when Snap returns, we've got a story of equal parts despair and hope. I think you're going to dig it. Trust me. When Snap Judgment, storytelling with the beat continues, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. Now it's time for us to listen to you. Voice your opinions and provide feedback about public radio at nprlistens.org. Your input helps NPR's efforts to bring you the news and stories that matter. Have a say at nprlistens.org. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Trust Me episode. My name is Lynn Washington, and today we're exploring situations where someone, for some reason or another, has to extend the hand of trust. For our next piece, we're sailing clear across the planet to Zambia, where a little boy was looking for someone that he could believe in.
in a little town called Kalingalinga, on the edge of Zambia's capital. Life was tough for a little boy called Given Kachepa. He was one of six kids, the town was poor, but when he lost both his parents by the age of nine, that's when he was forced to grow up really quickly. I was just trying to, to think about what my life was going to be like without having my parents around. Where am I going to get my next meal, or how am I going to be able to buy books so I can go back to school? Education was something that I've always wanted for myself, and I don't know where that came from, but I just, I've always had the need uh, to have an education. But school wasn't an option. So what he did was he walked to a nearby quarry, a place where he knew he could eke out a living crushing rocks into gravel. So a lot of people do that as a way to make a living. So I started crushing rocks. Most of the times, it's really, really, really hot. You're just out there all by yourself with the hammer and trying to take off as, you know, the little pieces. And then you take those little pieces, you put them in the wheelbarrow, you take it to the side of the street. And then when you're selling it, you're only selling it for maybe $5 when you've done two weeks uh, worth of work. And this wasn't unique to just me. There were so many other kids that were going through the same thing. There was joy, though. And mostly it came when Given would sing in his church's boys' choir. Yeah, singing in church gave me a happiness because it gave me something to look forward to on a daily basis. All of that was just really uh, uplifting uh, to myself at the time. And suddenly, when he was only 11 years old, his singing skills offered him an opportunity to change his life. I'd been singing with the choir for two years. There was a ministry from the United States, and they were looking for singers to come to the United States. The missionaries came to my community, and they said, you know, we need 12 boys. Not only would Given get an education in the U.S., but the money raised from the choir's performances would be used to build a school in Zambia. 64 boys from the community auditioned for 12 spots. I was singing, you know, as loud as I can so my voice could be heard. I was trying to be as good a person as I could because when I went home, I looked at, you know, my younger sister, she didn't have anything. My older brothers didn't have anything. And this very simple fact that we were going to to be coming to the United States gave you an extra motivation to do everything that you can so that you can help out your siblings. They lined us up, and then they said, we have these names that we're going to call out. Given was the youngest boy accepted into the choir. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I was jumping up and down. I, I just think this was a, a perfect uh, thing to happen to me at the time. When you're living in a third world country, and then you're, when you're watching, you know, uh, for example, you're watching the Cosby show. The only image that you have of this place is that it's a wonderful place and nothing bad can possibly come out of it. The boys arrived in America and began to sing. And in concert after concert, audiences across the country were moved. Oh, their, their voices were angelic. Lift up my soul. Lift up my soul. They sang beautifully. Their harmony was just incredible. Sandy Shepard was so moved by the boys singing that she began to volunteer for the ministry. She hosted the boys in her home when they visited her church, and people like Sandy were giving money, a lot of money. Because when we were singing, we would be asking for love offerings. If somebody was wanting to to sponsor a kid in Africa, then they could fill out a form and leave a check right there. They were taking in lots and lots of money with the sales of CDs and love offerings. The boys watched the money come in, but they were never paid, and they weren't going to school like they had been promised. So they wondered if a school was actually being built in Zambia. Yeah, I started to realize that things were not as perfect as I'd been promised. I think it was three months after we'd been in the United States. So that's when we, we began to, you know, to ask more questions, you know, like, when are you going to, to start paying us? Or when are you going to start telling us about the progress that you're making back home in Zambia, about the schools that you said you're going to be building? Given says the boys were forced to sing up to seven different concerts a day, and that they sometimes went without food. If we complained, they threatened us with uh, deportation back home to our country. 
And if we told anybody about uh, anything that we were going through, uh, they also threatened us uh, with deportation. So we were told to remain as silent as we could about anything that was taking place. But even if they had wanted to escape, he says they couldn't. The ministry made sure of it. Our passports uh, were kept by the, the ministry, and so you were really, really limited in trying to escape. He watched as all of their letters were opened and censored. He says he wasn't even allowed to make phone calls. I think the, the hardest part uh, for me was staying away from my family. We were not allowed to go back home to Zambia to see how things were. Denied his freedom and forced to work without pay. There was a word for this scenario. There's so many different uh, forms of uh, slavery, but I think the basic definition would be the exploitation of somebody to gain from their work and deceiving that person. We know that we raised money and none of the choir members benefited from that money. Where that money went, nobody knows really. So I think, yeah, that fits the definition very well. So the boys decided that the only option was to free themselves. We started planning on ways that we could try to get away from them. They started to rebel. They made demands, and they refused to sing if the demands weren't met. And the ministry threatened to send four boys home. They involved the INS, and then an INS agent was dispatched to Sherman, Texas. Uh, We became very afraid, and he picked up those four boys in handcuffs. But on the way to the airport, you know, he started talking to the boys, and he learned that there were two sides to the story. The INS agent did not deport the boys. Instead, he turned around and took the boys to a safe place. He found homes for them in Dallas, and they started going to school, and so the INS agent that came, then came back and picked us up, and and, uh, that's how we were rescued. The ministry was investigated by the Bureau of Labor and found liable for $900,000 in back wages and fines. Given was placed with a foster family, Sandy Shepard and her husband Dietz. Back when Sandy had hosted some of the boys from the choir in her home, she had noticed that they were tired and scared, and she began to ask them questions. She found out that the ministry was not what it seemed. Eventually, she called the authorities. It was very deceiving because I had been closely involved with volunteering and trying to help. But at the point at which I finally made the decision to call the FBI, it was certainly was out of my comfort zone, but I believed that I was standing up for the kids and for the right reasons. She also called the Zambian ambassador. And I said, your boys are being exploited. Two years later, Sandy got a call from her church. And they said, we have seven boys that have been picked up. Can you come up to the church and help us find homes for them to stay in? Otherwise, they're going to have to be put in jail. And I said, you know, given if you'd like to stay here, we'd love to have you, and we'll see what we can do to help you. They took us in into their home and provided all the stuff that we needed at the time. But he was nervous. He didn't feel safe. When you've been in that kind of situation for for so long, uh, so it it takes a long time for you to build the trust that, you know, I want to trust this person. So it took me a long, long, long time. I mean, even to this day, uh, I'm very, very not trusting of people. Given lived with Sandy and Deet Shepard for over a decade, but he always had trouble calling them mom and dad. To me, it's just very, very hard to to bring out those words. I don't know why. Still... Given had a safe home, he was able to contact his family in Zambia and even go back and visit. And he finally got to go to school in Texas. I uh, started out actually in in the eighth grade. I'd promised myself when I was a little kid that I wanted to get a certain amount of years in school. That until I got that, then I wasn't going to quit. He went from middle school to high school to college to graduate school. But he'd always wanted an education for his brothers and sisters, the ones still in Zambia and the school that the ministry had promised was never built. Not until a new group stepped in to make it happen. Well, yeah, uh, my mom, well, here I I go again. Uh, I guess I'm going to use those words. My mom and dad, Sandy and Dietz, uh, have been raising money for schools back home in, in my community. 
His trust has developed through the years because he's, he's seen and lived the amount of work we've done to try to help raise money to help the children in his community have a better life by getting their education. And they've been sponsoring that school for the last 14, 15 years. He's had such a challenge knowing who to trust. It happens in life that they're good people and they're bad people. I mean, I, I come from, from nothing, and the only way that I've gone this far is because of the help that I've gotten from so many different people. Big thanks to Given Kachepa and Sandy Shepard for talking with the SNAP. If you want to find out more about modern-day slavery, we put some information on our website, snapjudgment.org. And of course, that story was produced by none other than our own Anna Sussman. It's that time. Don't you fret and don't you frown. There is more SNAP storytelling available for you right now. Snapjudgment.org or iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever else diamonds are given away like straw. Get in on the conversation. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. Now, Snap was produced by myself and the most trustworthy clan in the entire Tri-County region. Give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Trust in me in all you do. Pat Masidi Miller is entrusted to make the beats go bump. Jamie DeWolf has trust issues from way back. Anna Sussman trusts everyone. Stephanie Fu trusts no one. Renzo Gorio is trustworthy, while Julia DeWitt, she can't be trusted. Will Urbina won't let me keep a spare set of keys. Now then, did you ever have a secret that you didn't want anyone to know? But you had to tell someone, someone who wouldn't spill the beans. Well, you could share your dirty little transgression with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and they'll never broadcast your transgression broadcast, to millions broadcast. of people around the country. No way would they do that again. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, trusted by people across this vast land to bring public media to the public and bring the public to public media. PRX.org. And now, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could pull an elaborate heist with 13 of the most nefarious, wicked, treasonous criminals the world has ever known. And when you do manage to purloin the queen's jewels and exchange them for a satchel with 170 million euro, you could walk alone with this satchel and get all the way to your hotel alive and unharmed and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.